Cue and Review, celebrating 40 years of audio production, welcomes you to this week's edition of the Glasgow Times Sports Podcast, recorded from our studio in the Bishopbriggs Media Centre and by our volunteers working from home. Keep up to date with Cue and Review news via our Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Cue and Review, that's at sign C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W or get in touch with us directly by emailing information at qreview.com that's I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at sign C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141-772-3976 Please like and share our podcast and give us constructive feedback. History tells us there are no guarantees over dealings in January. Will Kuhn make market Celtic or join the list of mid-season also-rans? Matthew Lindsay, Chief Football Writer, from the Glasgow Times Sports section published on Tuesday the 16th of January 2024. It is a little over 20 years since Celtic made their very first signing in a January transfer window, the £350,000 capture of Stephen Pearson from their Scottish Premier League rivals Motherwell. But since Scotland midfielder Pearson was brought in on January 9, 2004, with money which manager Martin O'Neill stumped up personally out of his own pocket, there have been around 70 new recruits to arrive at Parkhead halfway through a campaign. Many have made a significant impact and helped the Glasgow Giants to enjoy success at home and abroad in the seasons which have followed. Numerous others, however, have barely been cited after their official unveilings. Celtic fans will be hoping that Nicholas Kuhn, the German winger who was last night set to complete his £3 million move from Rapid Vienna in Austria to the Scottish champions after undergoing a medical in London, is more Dyson Maeda than Marvin Kemper. The prospect of the Premiership leaders strengthening their squad and increasing their chances of beating Rangers to the top-flight trophy once again this season is an exciting one for their supporters. Since the winter break got underway, internet message boards, social media websites and radio phone-ins have been awash with feverish speculation about who Brendan Rodgers has his eye on. The UEFA Executive Committee recommended introducing two periods of transfer activity during the course of the year to their 51-member associations back in 2002 because they felt it would result in a more harmonized system. Punters everywhere, though, have been thrust into a state of complete discombobulation in the first month of the year ever since. But do January signings actually make a real difference to the outcome of the league? Every manager will say tell you it is a difficult window to do meaningful business in. Often the only individuals who are available and affordable are not getting a regular game. So can a goalkeeper, a defender, a midfielder or a striker be brought on board who becomes the deciding factor in a title race? Players have certainly done so in the past. Just two seasons ago, Ange Postacoglu was struggling to get 11 fit senior footballers on the park in the weeks before the winter break and was forced to turn to youngsters like Joey Dawson, Owen Moffat, Liam Scales, Liam Shaw, and Adam Montgomery. He went out and brought in, among others, Rayo Hattate from Kawasaki Frontale, Maeda from Yokohama F. Marinos and Matt O'Reilly from MK Dons. Celtic were a team transformed domestically with the trio involved in the centre and final third of the pitch. They won 15 and drew three of their remaining 18 league fixtures and finished four points clear of their city rivals. That was not the only occasion when some shrewd dealings in January have been rewarded with silverware. Gordon Strachan's side were failing to convince onlookers on the home front towards the end of 2007, they were held to draws by Hearts, St. Mirren and Hibernian and lost to Inverness Caledonian Thistle in December, 
and rumblings of discontent were growing in the stands despite their qualification for the Champions League knockout rounds. Strachan signed right-back Andreas Hinkle, midfielder Barry Robson and striker Djordjos Samaras. All three were important players as Celtic beat Rangers in the final two Old Firm games of the season, won their final seven league outings and came from behind to land the trophy by three points on the final day in May. Walter Smith's men stumbled in the closing straight as they tried to fulfil a punishing fixture backlog and there was great unhappiness down Govan Way at the demands which were placed on them. Still, Hinkle was reliable at the back, Robson struck up a superb partnership with Hartley in the middle of the park and Samaras pitched in with vital winners against Aberdeen and Motherwell. But it has not always been thus. For every Hinkle, Robson, and Samaras, there has been an Edson Brafiad, a Willow Flood and a Vakuni Sufbaya. Some players also take time to settle and perform to the best of their abilities. Mikhail Lustig is the perfect example of that. The Sweden internationalist rarely featured after joining from Rosenborg in Norway at the start of 2012. On the occasions he did start, he produced underwhelming personal performances. He hardly contributed to their title triumph that season. But the fullback stepped things up the following term and is now rightly regarded as a modern-day great. Even when players do make an immediate impression, it is often not enough to ensure that Celtic prevail in the Premiership. Chris Commons was nothing short of a revelation after being pinched from under the noses of Rangers for a bargain fee of £300,000 from Derby County at the beginning of 2011. He scored in the sixth minute of his debut against Aberdeen in a League Cup semi-final at Hampden, and very much continued in that vein thereafter. The playmaker, though, was helpless to prevent Rangers from retaining their league crown. Robbie Keane was much the same. Huge crowds gathered outside Parkhead when the Republic of Ireland internationalist joined from Spurs on loan on February 1, 2010. He did not disappoint. He was on target 16 times in 19 appearances in the following three months. But Tony Mowbray still ended up getting sacked and a humiliating Scottish Cup semi-final defeat to Ross County was suffered. Rogers had mixed fortunes in the January window during his previous stint in the dugout at Celtic. Kumpo was a spectacular failure, Ebue Kwasi did not develop as anticipated and Charlie Masonda failed to provide a creative spark up front. But Oliver Burke, Timothy Weir and Scott Bain all justified the faith he showed in them. The Northern Irishman will be hoping that Kuhn follows in their footsteps, but if you know your history you will realise there are no guarantees that a player who is brought on board at this stage in a season will be a game-changer. This article was read by Arthur. You are listening to the Glasgow Times talking newspaper from Q and Review, print speaking to the blind. We would love your feedback on our readers. So please visit our website to complete an online survey at www.qandreview.com forward slash listener survey. Or after the 8th of January 2024 give us a call on 0141-648-4994 to speak directly to our managing editor. From the Glasgow Times Sports section published on Tuesday the 16th of January 2024. Medvedev threw his Atman feels the heat. Daniil Medvedev was troubled by the heat but benefited from the tearful retirement of opponent Terence Atman to move through to the second round of the Australian Open. The number three seed, twice a beaten finalist here dropped the first set to French qualifier Atman and called the trainer for treatment on his thighs. But it was Atman who decided that he could not go on, the 22-year-old calling it a day trailing 5-7, 6-2, 6-4, 1-0 before sobbing on his chair with head in hands. Here I think what is tough is that the conditions were not the toughest I have ever played in, but since one week we didn't really have hot days, said Medvedev, who next faces Finemil Rusuviori. So here, first match for me, he's not used to grand slams also yet so a lot of nerves. The heat is there. So physically it's not easy I think. It's tough for everyone. I'm happy that I managed to be stronger physically because it was not easy at one moment. 
At this moment he started cramping. Just have to stay in there and I'm happy to go through. Last year's beaten finalist, Stefanos Tsitsipas, also found himself a set down to lucky loser Zizou Bergs before fighting back to win 5-7, 6-1, 6-1, 6-3. Tsitsipas, who had been due to face Matteo Berrettini before the Italian pulled out, said, great game of tennis, the second and third sets of the match. I wasn't focused too much on score and I did a great job there, coming up with powerful shots, pressing early on during the rallies. It felt great to be at that level. The number 7 seed has been battling to recover from the back injury that saw him withdraw from the ATP finals in November. It has still affected him in the early stages of this season, with Tsitsipas pulling out of a charity match last week, but he is optimistic he is on the right track. It was a tricky part during the preseason to be faced with something like this, said the Greek. But now I'm healthy. I'm headed in the right direction. Alex de Minor is carrying the hopes of the home nation after breaking into the top 10 for the first time and he dropped the first set against Milos Raonic before the Canadian retired. American Ben Shelton, who made a breakthrough run to the quarterfinals here last year, eased into round 2 with a 6-2, 7-6, 2, 7-5 victory over Roberto Bautista Agut but there were defeats for former champion Stan Vavrinka and Canadian Denis Shapovalov. This article was read by Arthur. You are listening to the Glasgow Times talking newspaper from Q and Review, print speaking to the blind. We would love your feedback on our readers. So please visit our website to complete an online survey at www.qandreview.com forward slash listener survey. Or after the 8th of January 2024 give us a call on 0141 648 4994 to speak directly to our managing editor. From the Glasgow Times sports section published on Tuesday the 16th of January 2024. Murray, Melbourne may have seen the last of me. Dispirited Scott admits uncertainty over future after first round exit. Eleanor Crooks in Melbourne. NDY Murray admitted the window on his career is closing and that a meek loss to Tomas Martin Echeverry may have been his last Australian Open match. The five-time finalist was outplayed in a 6-4, 6-2, 6-2 defeat that was a far cry from his glory days and he looked emotional as he gave a lingering wave to all sides of Kia Arena. It was only Murray's second opening round loss at Melbourne Park in the last 16 years, with the other coming five years ago against Spain's Roberto Bautista Agut after the Scot had revealed that hip problems Andy Murray cuts a dejected figure as he addresses the media after loss could mean the end of his career. Surgery and a grueling recovery process have given him a commendable postscript, but Murray did not dispute that this much more low-key exit could signal his final goodbye. He said, It's a definite possibility that it will be the last time I play here. I think probably because of how the match went and everything. While you're playing the match, you're obviously trying to control your emotions, focus on the points and everything. When you're one point away from the end, you're like, I can't believe this is over so quickly, and like this. In comparison to the matches that I played here last year, it's the complete opposite feeling walking off the court. I wish I involved the crowd more. Just disappointed with the way I played and all of that stuff. It's a, tough, tough way to finish. Murray admitted at the end of last season he was not enjoying tennis, and it is increasingly hard to see him finding the sort of performances and results that will bring the joy back. This was his fourth defeat in a row dating back to October, and he has lost seven of his last eight matches, the worst run of his career. At the Australian Open last year, Murray conjured two of the more memorable performances with five-set wins over Matteo Berrettini and Thanasi Kakinakis, 
and there was optimism he could achieve the sort of results he has been striving for. The 36-year-old is now struggling to hold on to that belief as he said, I know in the last week, 10 days, how well I was playing against the best players in the world. That's why it's so frustrating that on the match court it's not there. I've been telling myself that at some stage it will. But obviously when you have performances like today, or a batch of results over a period of time like I have done, it's tough to keep believing in that. Murray has said previously he has an idea of when he would like to retire, but he admitted the date could be brought forward. He added, I know that Thomas is a really, really good player. I'm aware of that. Even if I play well today, I can still lose the match. It's just the nature of the performance that makes you question things. I haven't gained in belief from today's match that at some stage I'm going to start playing really well again or winning tournaments or getting to the latter stages of major events. Last year was a slightly different story. Physically I held up well against two really good players. It's a very different situation sitting here. So the time frame narrows a little bit for me to get to a level that I want to be at. I've spoken to my family about it. I've spoken to my team about it. They're very aware of how I feel about things, where I would like to finish playing, when that would be. I haven't made any definite decisions on that. It's obviously something that I need to think about and see exactly when that is. Murray hung his head as he trudged disconsolately back to his chair after a final forehand sailed into the net and he looked emotional while waving to all sides of the arena. The Scot and 24-year-old Echeverry had met twice last year in two close contests that ended with one victory apiece. From the start, the match was dominated by long baseline rallies. Murray dropped serve in the opening game but broke back immediately and had one chance to move four to two ahead only for a lob to fall short. It proved a costly error as, with Murray trying to extract life from the old balls on serve in the next game, Echeverry broke again before clinching a 61-minute first set. Murray's serve was proving his main Achilles heel, with his first delivery unreliable and the second offering Echeverry the chance to take control of the rallies. The Argentinian, a quarterfinalists at the French Open last year, was also making fewer mistakes from the baseline and Murray's resistance was broken again early in the second set. Fans had queued around the block to try to get into Kia Arena, but the atmosphere was muted as Murray stepped out for the third set, faced with trying to mount yet another epic comeback. He did not get as down on himself as he has in recent matches and probed for a way into the contest, but it was Echeverry who broke serve again to lead 3-2, and the end swiftly followed. This article was read by Arthur. You are listening to the Glasgow Times talking newspaper from Q and Review, print speaking to the blind. We would love your feedback on our readers. So please visit our website to complete an online survey at www.qandreview.com forward slash listener survey. Or after the 8th of January 2024 give us a call on 0141 648 4994 to speak directly to our managing editor. From the Glasgow Times Sports section published on Tuesday the 16th of January 2024. Osaka finds positives in defeat as Grand Slam comeback is cut short. Women's draw. Eleanor Crooks. Nomi Osaka's Grand Slam return ended prematurely in a first-round loss at the Australian Open to 16th seed Caroline Garcia. 
playing in her first major tournament since the US Open in 2022 following the birth of daughter last summer, Osaka gave Garcia a good fight but fell to a 6-4, 7-6-2 defeat on Rod Lava Arena. It is the first time the 26-year-old, who won the title in Melbourne in 2019 and 2021, has lost in the opening round here. She made her return in Brisbane a fortnight ago, beating Tamara Korpach before a narrow loss to Carolina Pliskova. This was a step up both in occasion and opponent but Osaka showed her serve and ground strokes have lost none of their potency, drawing grasps from the crowd with her crisp ball striking. There were a few too many errors, though, and Garcia's break of serve to lead 3-2 ultimately decided the set. Neither player could find the breakthrough in the second set but Francis Garcia, who served 13 aces in all, was the stronger in the tie break. I thought it was a really good match, said Osaka. I felt like I did the best that I could possibly do. It was just really nice to be on Rod Lava again, hear the audience, how much they interacted with the match. That was fun. I don't regret anything. I think I've learned a lot during this trip, both on the court and off the court. Also, I think I just played some really good people, it's a little unfortunate. I wouldn't say this comeback is how I thought because I'm delusional enough to think I could have won the tournament. I think my delusion is what allows me to win the tournaments. I think I just have to keep living day by day and training hard, playing a lot more matches, and hopefully my dreams will come true. Coco Gauff eased into the second round but Wimbledon champion marketer von Drausova was an early casualty. The Czech number 7 seed, a surprise winner at the All England Club last summer, won only three games in a 6-1, 6-2 defeat to Ukrainian qualifier Dejana Yastremska. The 23-year-old spoke afterwards about the inspiration she takes from the bravery of people in her war-torn homeland, saying, I'm very proud of Ukraine, proud of the people, proud of the warriors and just the civilians. When I was in Brisbane, before my match the rocket arrived on my grandmother's house so it was pretty hard to play but I think we just need to remember about it and give as much support as possible to Ukraine. I'm proud to be Ukrainian. Von Drausova reached the quarterfinals of the US Open but has otherwise struggled since defeating Ons Jaber in the Wimbledon final. She made 19 unforced errors, while the big-hitting Yastremska racked up 26 winners. Horf opened proceedings on Rod Lava Arena on the second day of the tournament for her first Grand Slam match since she lifted the US Open trophy in September. And she brushed aside Slovakia's Anna Karolina Schmidlova 6-3, 6-0 in exactly an hour, winning nine games in a row to set up a second-round clash with countrywoman Caroline Dolhide. There was more success for Ukraine on the 1,573 arena, where number 19 seed Elena Svitolina, who missed last year's tournament, saw off Australian wildcard Taylor Preston 6-2, 6-2. Number 6 seed Jaber made a confident start, beating qualifier Yulia Starodutsova 6-3, 6-1 to set up a second-round clash with Russian Mira Andreeva, the third 16-year-old to reach the last 64. The teenager was a beaten finalist in the girls' singles last year but has made rapid strides in the senior game, including a run to the fourth round of Wimbledon. I know she's 16 years old, but she's very tough, said Jaber. This article was read by Amy. You are listening to the Glasgow Times talking newspaper from Q and Review, print speaking to the blind. We would love your feedback on our readers. 
So please visit our website to complete an online survey at www.qandreview.com forward slash listener survey. Or after the 8th of January 2024 give us a call on 0141-648-4994 to speak directly to our managing editor. This is from the Glasgow Times on Wednesday the 17th of January 2024. From the sports section. Hamilton Teen will be part of Team GB at Youth Winter Olympics. Exclusive by Anne Fotheringham, Senior Features Writer. A trainee hairdresser from Hamilton is taking her curling skills to new levels at the Youth Winter Olympics in South Korea this month. However, 16-year-old Holly Burke is swapping her comb and heated rollers for a brush and granite stones as she prepares to take to the ice as a member of Team GB's six-strong all-Scottish youth curling squad. The talented teenager, who left Hamilton Grammar last summer, will represent Great Britain alongside Dumfries teenagers Logan Carson, Archie Hislop and Tia Laurie, Ethan Brewster from Aberdeen and Callie Sutter from Forfar in the mixed rink in Gangwon, South Korea. Holly was inspired by the Olympics of 2018 to get into the sport, aged just 11. Now, five years on, Holly has proven her skill on a variety of stages, leading to a call-up to the Youth Olympic squad. A member of the Scottish National Curling Academy and the Scottish Curling Future Leaders Programme, she has represented Scotland at the National Junior Curling Tournament Mixed Doubles and been placed third in the Scottish Junior Championships in both 2022 and 2023. Holly balances her curling career with her studies at New College Lanarkshire and a part-time job in South Lanarkshire Leisure and Culture's busy Visitor Centre Cafe at Shattleharrow Country Park. There are an estimated 1.5 million curlers across Scotland at all levels, many of whom, like Holly, are shrugging off the sport's often old-fashioned image. Holly said, Curling is a strategic, fiercely competitive and physically challenging sport which requires real athletic ability to be successful at the highest level. I would urge all ages to get involved. It's an amazing sport. I feel incredibly honoured to be able to represent my country at the Youth Winter Olympic Games. To be selected is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I'm so grateful for. Holly's delighted parents, Caroline and Paul, are supporting her at the Games, which start on January the 19th. Caroline said, We are so proud of her. She has worked very hard for this opportunity, and we are grateful to both NCL and SLLC for the flexibility they have given to allow her to balance studies, work, and the sporting opportunity of a lifetime. South Lanarkshire Council Provost Margaret Cooper said, South Lanarkshire has a very long and successful reputation in sporting excellence across a wide range of sports and Holly is proudly adding youth curling to that list. I have to also highlight the hard work day in and day out that goes into creating this new generation of athletes and commend their clubs, coaches and families for the commitment they put into supporting our young people to reach this very highest level of competition. On behalf of the people of South Lanarkshire, I wish Holly every success in South Korea 
and in all of her future endeavours. That article was by Anne Fotheringham. This is from the Glasgow Times. On Wednesday, the 17th of January, 2024. From the sports section. Rangers legend Bill Struth, officially the most successful manager ever. Article by Aidan Smith, Sport Audience and Engagement Editor. New research has found that Rangers legend Bill Struth is the most successful football manager of all time. The study, conducted by the team at Gambling Zone, looked at the sporting managers with the highest win rates through their coaching careers to discover the most successful coaches. Struth takes first place, having coached over 1,600 games. He has an overall win rate of nearly 70%. The legendary Ibrox figure led Rangers for 34 years, winning 30 major trophies, a record 18 Scottish League Championships, 10 Scottish Cups and 2 Scottish League Cups during his career. This undoubtedly makes him one of the most successful managers in Scottish and British football history. Willie Malley is second on the list. Much like Struth, Malley also coached over 1,600 games, winning almost two-thirds, 64.45% of all games. Serving as a manager for 43 consecutive years, Malley is said to be one of the most successful managers in Scottish football history. He was the first manager of Celtic, leading them to 30 major trophies, including 16 league championships and 14 Scottish Cups. Taking third place is John Jock Steen, who was the first manager of a British side to win the European Cup as coach of Celtic. Coaching over 1,000 games, Steen won nearly two-thirds, 63.31% of all his games. Steen also guided Celtic to nine successive Scottish League Championships during his career. In his 13 years at Celtic as manager, Steen won the European Cup, 10 Scottish League Championships, 8 Scottish Cups and 6 Scottish League Cups. Rank coach wins percentage 1. Bill Struth, 68.52% 2. Willie Malley, 64.45% 3. Jock Steen, 63.31% 4. Alex Ferguson 58.1% 5. Dusan Bajovic 56.85% 6. Valery Lobanovsky 56.54% 7. Otmar Hisfeld 54.09% 8. Arsene Wenger 54% 9. Tomislav Ivic 53.96% 10. Dick Advocat, 52.54%. Other findings from the report included Guy Chamberlain as the most successful NFL coach, winning over three quarters, 78.4% of every game he's ever coached in the league, the best win percentage of any coach in NFL history, with a minimum of 50 wins. Canadian professional ice hockey player and executive Tom Johnson is the most successful NHL coach ever, Johnson won the Stanley Cup a total of eight times, both as a player and manager. He coached 230 games during his career, winning over two-thirds, 68.3% of these games. And Vic Harris is the most successful MLB coach of all time, winning over two-thirds, 66.3% 
of all the games he coached during his career, totalling an impressive 547 wins. That article was by Aidan Smith. From the Glasgow Times, Saturday the 20th of January, from the sports section, women's football, Celtic 2, Rangers 3, Instant Reaction to the Burning Issues, article by sports writer David Irvin. Rangers sealed their spot in the Sky Sports Cup final after a breathless victory over rival Celtic. A bonkers cup tie saw three penalties awarded and a stoppage time winner in front of an enthusiastic split support. Celtic snatched a lead against the run of play in the second half, with Chloe Craig firing home a penalty after a handball against Catherine Hill. The Rangers defender made up for her error shortly after though, as she forced over the line after a smash in the box. With 10 minutes left, Rangers turned to the match on its head, as Rio Hardy cut back for Kristen McLean, who coolly slotted into the bottom corner. With 1 minute left, though, Celtic were rewarded a second penalty. This time, Tessel Midtag was adjudged to have filled in the box, even if TV replay suggested she got more than a fair touch of the ball. Craig made no mistake to level again, but Rangers would have the last laugh to seal the win with a penalty of their own after 95 minutes. Caitlin Hayes has pulled down Hardy in the box and the Rangers striker blasted home to win and send her side into the final. Krill's start for Elena Sadiku. It was always going to go one of two ways for new Celtic boss Elena Sadiku. Either a memorable triumph over rival Rangers in her duckout debut or a cruel defeat. However, no one could have called such a difficult defeat with a losing goal coming within seconds left in added time. Sadiku wants to be the Queen of Queens for Celtic, and that could still come to pass, but it's evident that the Excelsior there will always be bumps along the way. Rangers get the job done. With 12 goals in their previous two outings, it was always expected Rangers would score. Perhaps less predictable would be the somewhat blunt attack, as Joe Potter's side struggled to find a cutting edge. Multiple opportunities were passed up and more denied by the impressive Kelsey Doherty in the Celtic defence. Importantly, though, Rangers found a way. First, forcing over the line with Hill and then a terrific finish from McLean. And when it came to the crucial moment, Hardy made no mistake. Incredible entertainment. Three penalties. End-to-end stuff. No VAR and an intense rivalry thrown into the mix. That sounds like a recipe for entertainment. Thankfully, that was exactly the case at the Excelsior as Rangers toppled Celtic in a crazy 97 minutes of action in the Sky Sports Cup. There was a healthy dose of nerves, quality and dubious decisions all making a great advert for women's football in Scotland with BBC Alba covering the contest live. Our women's game is not in the limelight as often as it should be and an incredible cup tie was just another statement that the product is there. In that article was by David Irvin. From the Glasgow Times, Saturday the 20th of January, from the sports section, Dumbarton 1, Rangers 4, Instant Reaction to the Burning Issues, an article written by Matthew Lindsay and read by me, Ian. A Scottish Cup encounter with a part-time League 2 team away from home on a pitch which was described as terrible this week on a miserable night in January was a potential banana skin for Rangers and then some. Could the Ibrox club perform at their very best against Dumbarton at The Rock 
avoid the sort of infamous defeat they suffered at the hands of Berwick Rangers in 1967, progress to the fifth round, and keep their chances of completing a domestic treble this season alive? Philip Camont's players duly ensured that they will be in the draw for the Scottish Gas Sponsored Competition tomorrow evening, thanks to a first half John Ludstrom and Cecil Dessier goals, a second half James Tavernier penalty, and a late Scott Wright strike. Matthew Shields claimed a consolation goal for the host with a couple of minutes remaining, when he glanced a Ryan Wallace cross beyond Robbie McCrory. So were Rangers worthy winners? How are they looking after the winter break in a warm weather training camp in Spain? And did Minos Dumbarton ever look like producing a shock? Here are five talking points. Life's a pitch. With two outstanding cinch premiership matches to play as well as at least two Europa League knockout round games to negotiate in the second half of the season, the last thing Rangers needed was for this tie to be postponed. Clement would have been a relieved man when referee Alan Muir declared the pitch playable following a one o'clock inspection. The overnight thaw spared his side from a problematic fixture backlog. The surface was, though, far from the best. The visitors' manager had predicted in his pre-match press conference that the conditions underfoot would have a detrimental impact on the football his side played, and he was right. It took some time for his charges to settle and break the deadlock. They finally edged ahead in the 35th minute when John Souter headed a Todd Cantwell corner and Lindstrom nodded in from close range. Dessers put them two ahead four minutes before half-time when he got in the end of a tavernier cross and volleyed beyond Harry Brown. The Rangers captain rounded off the triumph late on when he converted a spot kick after Rabbi Matondo had been barged over by Carlo Pignanello. Wright got in in the act at the death. McCrory chance. Clement named the strongest outfield side he had available to him. Tavernier, Connor Golson, Suter, Reed Van Yilmaz, Lundstrom, Nicholas Raskin, Matondo, Cantwell, Ross McCausland and Dessers were all included in the Rangers lineup. He was not, despite the fourth tier opposition, taking any chances. However, the Belgian gave young Scottish keeper McCrory the chance to show what he was capable of in goals as he rested Jack Butland. It was the first start the 25 year old had made in the 2023 24 campaign and the first time he had featured in a competitive match for the Ibrox first team since the league meeting with St Mirren in Paisley on May 27th last year. He did not have a great deal to do, but he produced a vital save from Michael Ruth and pounced on a loose ball in his penalty box as Finlay Gray was poised to shoot when the scoreline was still nil-nil during the first half. Scotland manager Steve Clark is an admirer of a player who was impressed during spells at Berwick Rangers, Morton, Queen of the South and Livingston in the past and has named him in the national squad on several occasions but he feels McCrory needs to play more regularly to fulfil his undoubted potential and become a viable option for his country, and he has a point. The player should perhaps look to go out on loan during the remaining days, January transfer window, and increase his prospects of being involved at the Euro 2024 finals in Germany this summer. Solid Sons There was no historic cup upset for the home fans to celebrate tonight but they were rightly proud of the effort that Stevie Farrell's men put in during the course of the 90 minutes and employed them back into the changing room after Muir had blown the final whistle. Sean Crichton and his teammates made life very difficult indeed for their rivals during the opening half of an hour 
And if McCrory had not denied Ruth after the strike had been supplied by Pignatiello, then proceedings could have got interesting. Their goalkeeper, Brun, only got the nod when it emerged that Loney J. Hogworth could not play against his parent club due to SFA rules, acquitted himself particularly well. Fitness boost Clement has made no secret of his unhappiness at the length of the Rangers' injury list since replacing Michael Beale as manager back in October. He will, then, have been pleased to give Borna Barisic, Ryan Jack and Tom Lawrence, who came on for Yilmaz, Raskin and Cantwell respectively during a triple substitution in the second half, as well as Wolves loanee Fabio Silva, who replaced Dessers, more game time. He will need as many fit players as possible in the weeks and months ahead. Pyro Plonkers Many of the Union Bears Ultras group were unable to get their hands on any tickets for this, but they still turned out to watch the heroes in action from an area of waste ground behind one of the goals. Such devotion to their club's cause is laudable. Sadly, they greeted the emergence of the teams from the tunnel before kick-off with a pyrotechnic display. They set off red flares and fired rockets over the perimeter fence and in direction of the park. A couple exploded dangerously close to where the Dumbarton players were lining up. Representatives from the SFA, SPFL, Scottish Government and Football Safety Officers Association Scotland held talks at Hamden last year about how to tackle the growing use of pyro at matches after the Dundee v Rangers game at Dens Park was delayed due to fire alarms being set off in the Bob Shankly stand. They soon, the sooner they roll out their action plan the better because Rangers appeal to the hardcore element among their vast fan base to keep fireworks away from grounds has fallen on deaf ears. In that article was by Matthew Lindsay. From the Glasgow Times, Saturday the 20th of January, from the sports section, exclusive. Josh Kerr on how his life has changed, rivalries and Olympic gold. Article written by, by Susan Eaglestaff. It's amazing quite how much three and a half minutes can change someone's life. When Josh Kerr and I speak, with a 26-year-old in the midst of an altitude camp in the US, he's over two hours into media commitments. It's like that most days and has been, he said, since the minute he crossed the line to win his historic 1500 metres world title last August. Kerr, however, has never been one to get unduly ruffled and has taken the increased demand on his time in his stride as much as that's been possible. There's definitely a few more things on my plate now, the Scot says. Initially after the world, it was very frenetic. Lots of people wanted to speak to me and there were lots of opportunities coming my way. And so I realised I needed to structure it better. I do between an hour and two hours of media or commitments five or six days a week. It is a lot. I thought it would slow down after a month or two, but that's not happened yet. And so this this has been a whole new thing for me to get used to. Now, I have someone to run my calendar and that helps so that my training isn't disrupted. I've got used to the new routine pretty quickly though. I'm normally just talking about myself, so that's not too difficult. The opportunities he has afforded to the Edinburgh man since winning his world title have been plentiful. When pressed as to whether or not he's allowed himself to fully enjoy his newfound status as world champion, Kerr admits he's not entirely sure he has, but that's been a conscious decision. I don't know what the definition of enjoying a world title is, to be honest, he says. I don't know if I have done that. There's a lot of fun things that come with being world champion, 
but there's also things that are not as fun, and it's been a bit so it's been a bit of both. I've been invited to some really cool stuff that I haven't been able to go to. There was an awards night in London in mid-December, and there were Premier League managers and F1 drivers and those kinds of people going, and it sounded unbelievable. But then my team told me it was the same day I was racing, so I couldn't make it. So that sucked. I've still met some awesome people and been to some very cool things, but at the end of the day, I'm a runner, and that's the most humbling thing in the world because you can talk all you want, it's what you do when you're out there that matters. And actually, the most fun fun thing I've done was go back to my school and to my club in Edinburgh. I want kids to know that I'm a very regular person who's just able to compete at a high level. Kerr, who is now based in Seattle, may be getting pulled in all directions these days, but he's well aware how vital it is he doesn't lose focus on what's important. In reality, there's little chance of that happening. For 14 years, he's had his sights set on becoming Olympic champion at the 2024 Games. And he is now, as he says himself, closer than he's ever been. Kerr has never been short of self-belief. Long before he ever graced a major championship podium, He'd willingly tell anyone who asked that his ambition was to become the best in the world. Last August, in the final of the 1500 metres at the World Championships in Budapest, he achieved that ambition. His world title was far from out of the blue. He'd already set a raft of records in the ultra-competitive US collegiate scene, where he studied at New Mexico University and won Olympic bronze in 2021. But this was his world title outsprinting previous favourite Jacob Ingebrigtsen in the home straight that proved to both the world and to care himself that he had exactly what's needed not only to compete with the world's best but to beat them. That victory put Kerr in the privileged or high-pressured position of going into Olympic year as world champion. It's a feeling to which only a select few Brits can relate but the Edinburgh man, despite the intensity of the attention on him due to his status, wouldn't have it any other way. Ten years ago, if someone had asked me what the perfect way to be ending 2024 was, I'd have said already being an Olympian, already have an Olympic medal, and know that I can beat the best in the world, and that means being a world champion. The best way to go into the Olympics is knowing that you have the ability to win Olympic gold, and I know I do. So I'm pretty relaxed about it all. I've wanted to be the best in the world for a long time, and I'm there now. The Olympic Games are now less than 8 months away and, while those months will fly by, Kerr knows there is much work yet to be done between now and August. A heavy winter of training is now almost over. It passed without any illness or injury hampering the Scots' momentum and Kerr will make his first competitive appearance of the year at the Melrose Games in New York on the 11th of February where he will attempt to set a new world two-mile record. Following his indoor season, which he admits may yet include racing at the World Indoor Championships in Glasgow in March, Kerr must ensure selection for GB's Olympic team, with the British trials taking place in June. Despite his standing as world champion, Kerr's selection for Team GB is no formality, with compatriots 2022 world champion Jake Whiteman and 2023 European Indoor Silver Medalist Neil Gourley, just two of the other men who also have their sights set on being in Paris this summer. Kerr, However, is in as good, if not better shape than he's ever been. His most recent competitive outing was at the San Diego Half Marathon in December, where he set a new personal best time of 61 minutes 51 seconds, and so, while he refuses to get overexcited, Kerr is quietly confident as the 2024 racing season approaches. 
I have all the info from my past five years and I've gotten better every year, so it's about continuing that trajectory. I've not changed too much this year. The thing about running is that if you don't miss big blocks, you can continue to improve. So even though I'm doing similar things to before, I'm getting better, he says. This year, all my training sessions have gone very well, so I'd say I'm in a better place than I've been before. I know how strongly I am going into this season, but the important thing is to see how that translates onto the track. The men's 1500 metres is one of the most hotly anticipated events of the athletics schedule this year. With Karen Whiteman having won the two most recent 1500 metre titles, and Inge Brigston the reigning Olympic champion, the three-way rivalry is intense. Even more so considering the obvious personal dislike between Kerr and Ing Brigston, fueled almost entirely by the quite baffling behaviour of the Norwegian, who's reluctant to give even a shred of credit to anyone who dares to cross the line ahead of him. In the aftermath of his World Championship defeat in Budapest, Ingebrigtsen said he was unwell, implying the only reason Kerr had prevailed was because he was short of 100%. The Scot admits not only did the Norwegian's comments rile him, but also that he'll never take that kind of attitude from an opponent lying down. For onlookers, that mutual dislike makes for an intriguing rivalry over the coming months and particularly in Paris this summer. I can't affect anything Jacob does or says, but I'm also not going to stand by and get disrespected. I'm not someone who's going to be like, that's fine, he's entitled to his opinion. It's not okay. He was disrespectful and I'm not going to stand for it, Kerr says of Ingebrigtsen. I have a lot of respect for him as an Olympic champion and the work that he puts in. I just don't have respect for the way he treats his fellow athletes after races. I have a fantastic relationship with Jake Whiteman and a pretty terrible relationship with Jakob, but that's fine. I don't mind either way. I treat everyone the same when the gun goes off. I don't want to beat Jakob any more than I want to beat Jake. I want to beat them both. I know it's going to take a heck of a race to do that. Everyone wants to be part of a great era, and this current era of 1500 metre running has some really great runners in it. That makes for an exciting event and it makes for an exciting watch. That rivalry between us will all will grow, and we will probably meet each other a few times before the Olympic Games, but I don't think that's going to really affect what will happen on the day of the Olympic final. Jakob showed it in the Olympics in 2021, Jake showed it to the Worlds in 2022, and I showed it to the Worlds last year. When it's time to go, we're not going to shy away from a challenge and that's exciting. For all the media commitments, talk of rivalries and unsolicited opinions that will be a part of Kerr's life in the next eight months ahead of the Olympic Games, there's one thing that dominates his thoughts. With an Olympic medal and a world title to his name, there remains only one significant gap in his CV, and that's Olympic gold. And, while his pedigree ensures that the external pressure upon Kerr's shoulders will be exorbitant, in fact, his previous success has left him feeling lighter than he could have imagined. Come the Olympic 1500 metre final in August the 6th, Kerr's mind will not be cloudy by numerous tactical strategies. Rather, he'll have one plan in his head and he intends to follow it impeccably. If I have the option to risk it all for Olympic gold or hold back, he definitely got silver and bronze. I'm going to risk it all for gold, he says. I'm going to swing for the fences in Paris. I think that makes me more dangerous than I've ever been because I don't care about getting a medal. I care only about winning. 
Having an Olympic medal is a very special thing and I have one already. Now I want gold. And that article was an exclusive by Susan Eaglestaff. Evening Times Sport, January 22. Former referee to host Football Memories Talk at Hampden Park. Report by Nathan Russell. Former referee Doogie Hope and a group of other ex-officials will speak at a series of events for people living with memory loss conditions. The Football Memories Nationwide Whistle Stop Tour has been organised by the Scottish Football Museum and sponsored by Specsavers. The initiative which helps to support those with dementia, Alzheimer's and those experiencing loneliness and social isolation will have its Hamden Park event of the tour hosted by Mr Hope on Thursday, January 25 at 10am. Having refereed over a thousand matches in Scotland, the Renfrew man will have tales of his career, including his final game, Dundee United's one nothing victory over Rangers in the 1994 Scottish Cup final. Established in 2009, the Football Memories Project is a joint effort by the Scottish Football Museum and Alzheimer's Scotland. The initiative hosts 500 groups nationally with football-themed resources such as newspaper clippings, life-size player cutouts and even old football boots all contained within a memory box. Robert Craig, Chair of the Museum, said, We are excited to get underway with the first activity in our new partnership with Specsavers. Their support to the Football Memories Project, which impacts the lives of all who touch it, is invaluable and helps us to continue to deliver for those living with memory loss conditions or experiencing isolation. Crawford Allen, Scottish FA Head of Referee Operations said, Football Memories is a fantastic initiative and one our roster of former referees will gladly support as an extension of our existing partnership with Specsavers. We are sure their stories and treasured memorabilia will spark many happy memories. Arlene Stevenson, Specsavers Scottish Divisional Chair, said, Specsavers is proud of our long tradition in backing Scottish referees, but our latest sponsorship deal sees us going further than ever, helping to raise awareness of the vital work Football Memories does in assisting people living with memory loss conditions. Anyone wishing to attend the Hamden Group are asked to register via email richard.mcbrety mckbreaty at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk by Tuesday. This charitable endeavour continues the long-standing relationship between Specsavers and the Scottish Football Association a sponsorship deal that extends into 2024. Report 
by Nathan Russell. Evening Times Sport, January 22. Celtic and Rangers dealt Beck transfer blow. Report by Aidan Smith. Celtic and Rangers have both been dealt a blow in their pursuit of Liverpool defender Owen Beck after he featured for Jurgen Klopp's side yesterday. The Welshman spent the first half of this season on loan at Dundee in the Scottish Premiership and impressed, capturing the attention of Glasgow's Big Two ahead of the January transfer window. Liverpool recalled Beck this month and reports suggested that both Celtic and Rangers were eyeing a possible swoop for the youngster this month. But Beck will not be heading back to Scotland this season after he came on as a substitute for Klopp's team during their Premier League clash with Bournemouth. The 21-year-old replaced Connor Bradley on 83 minutes at the Vitality Stadium and FIFA rulings now mean that he cannot feature for another team this season other than Liverpool and Dundee. Report by Aidan Smith Evening Times Sport January 22 Rangers manager Brands early SEMA prognoses dangerous Report by Matthew Lindsay Philippe Clément has admitted he is keen for Abdallah Sima to return to Rangers as fast as possible so Ibrook's medical staff can assess the injury that has ruled the forward out of the African Cup of Nations. The Brighton Loney, who is the second top scorer for the Ibrooks club this season, with 15 goals in all competitions, had been away representing Senegal in the Ivory Coast this month. However, the 22-year-old has been sent home by his country after suffering a thigh injury in a training session last Wednesday. A statement released by the Senegalese Football Association predicted the player was facing a long period of unavailability. However, speaking after Rangers' comfortable 4-1 win over the League 2 rivals Dumbarton in a Scottish Cup fourth-round game at the weekend, Clement said, I have been in contact with him already. He is going to come back as fast as possible to make a good assessment and to see how long he will be out. It is always dangerous to hear those things when they happen, when they are not here. I always like to hear my medical staff and what they think about things. So he is going to come back as fast as possible. Meanwhile, Clement has admitted that Rangers need to reach a financial agreement with John Lundstrom, who was named Man of the Match after the victory over the part-time Dumbarton side, and that he wants to keep the midfield at Ibrooks beyond the 23-24 campaign. The Englishman who opened the scoring in the win over the League 2 team is out of contract in the summer and is currently free to speak to other interested parties. The Belgian described having five players, 
Leon Balogan, Borna Barisic, Ryan Jack, Lundstrom and Kemar Ruh, whose current deals expire at the end of the season as a crazy situation and is clearly unhappy that he could lose key first-team personnel for nothing. And he said, that is a financial thing between him and the club. Both parties show interest to do that. That is clear. We will see in the next couple of weeks and months. He is in the situation where he can sign somewhere else. We will see. It is clear that he feels good in the club. And the way of working and everybody tells me also that he is showing a better level than he had in the beginning of the season. I want to see him continue like that. And then there will be a solution between the two parties at the end of the day. I talk with my players every day. It is clear what my mind is about. Clement expressed satisfaction with how Rangers, who won thanks to goals from Lundstrom, Cyril Dessers, James Tavarnier and Scott Wright performed against Dumbarton. And he continued, They did what I asked, to be professional, to be switched on in every situation, and to adapt to the situation. On that kind of pitch, we cannot play our normal football. There is not one team in the world who can play really good combination play in those circumstances. So you need to adapt. We did that by scoring four goals and creating enough other chances. It is a pity you get the goal against, but we were never in trouble and the whole game we were in control. That is important in the cup to go through. We have some extra playing minutes for some players who came back out of injury with Scott Wright, Tom Lawrence, Ryan Jack and with Borna Barisic. That is important for the next weeks and months. Goalkeeper Jack Butland was rested and Robbie McCrory handed his first start of the season and he was pleased with how the young Scott acquitted himself. He said, it is important. I know his qualities. I see the training. It is still a young player who needs to develop, but he has shown really good things in training and I want to give him experience. That is my job in the short term, game by game, but also looking long term, to give young players chance to develop. It was important for him to take these minutes like he took the minutes in the friendlies against Hertha and Copenhagen. Report by Matthew Lindsay. Evening Times Sport January 22 Why Rangers midfielder loved playing in worst conditions of his career Report by Matthew Lindsay Nicholas Raskin admitted the conditions that Rangers played Dumbarton in were the worst he had ever experienced in his career but stressed he had relished being involved in the Scottish Cup victory Raskin started in the fourth round tie against the League Two outfit at the Rock and ensured that Ibert's club forged into a two-goal lead before being replaced by Ryan Jack midway through the second half. The Belgian confessed he found the pitch, 
which had passed a 1pm inspection by referee Alan Muir, and the high winds and heavy rain had made the encounter with the part-time outfit difficult to negotiate. However, the 22-year-old, who returned from a two-month injury layoff in the Singe Premiership meeting with Kilmarnock at the start of January, relished helping Rangers to progress to the fifth round. And he said, I always like to play in these type of games because it reminds me of watching my father play. We play one or two of those kind of games a year, but our opponents are doing it every week so we need to respect them. That is real football, because in the world there are more games like that than in the big stadiums. We had to play the best we can on the pitch. You could see it is hard, but I think we did good. It can be a tough pitch for the muscles, but it was good. Of course, winning the trophy is our goal, but sometimes you have to get through a day like this. Maybe they are the most difficult, coming here with the weather and the pitch. It was important to put a good performance in. We enjoyed it. Winning games is always enjoyable. Winning as a team is always enjoyable. As a young boy, I played loads of those games so you can always enjoy them. But altogether, they were the worst conditions I have played in. Raskin has hardly featured under Philippe Clément since his countryman replaced Michael Beale as manager back in October due to his hit, but he stressed that he is keen to get a run of games under the former Genk and Club Bruges coach in the weeks and months. And he continued, I am looking for a lot. I played two and a half games and then I got injured. I enjoyed them and scored a goal. I am very happy to be back and playing the attacking football the manager wants us to play, and with a good structure. Report by Matthew Lindsay Evening Times Sport, January 22 Rogers in Rangers Penalty Dig Report by Graham McGarry Brendan Rodgers had a dig at the controversy surrounding Willie Collum's VAR decision in December's Old Firm game after Celtic were denied a penalty in the win over Bucky Thistle because of an offside call. Referee Chris Graham was called over to the VAR screen in the first half of the 5 nothing win over the Highland League side after Leal Abada hit the deck inside the area. After a lengthy review, the infringement was deemed to be inconsequential, as the Celtic winger was initially in an offside position. Rogers could not understand why the incident had to be reviewed at all, if it had already been determined that Abada was offside, and he illustrated his point by referencing the furore around Alistair Johnson's handball in the win over Rangers last month. Said Rogers, I think the frustrating one was the penalty one that was looked at. It shouldn't be looked at, it's offside. But they had to for some reason, it's protocol according to the fourth official. They had to look to see if it's a penalty first 
before they look to disallow it because it's offside, which just seems ridiculous. If it's offside, then the penalty doesn't even matter, as we know. Meanwhile, proud Bucky Thistle manager Graham Stewart praised both his own players and their hosts for the welcome they were given, revealing that Celtic manager Rogers had addressed his men after the game. Said Stewart, None of the players were in our changing room after the game. They were all in the Celtic changing room. Celtic were brilliant taking them in, though I noticed Celtic had sushi and nicer food than us. Brendan Rogers was brilliant. They gave us strips, signed strips, and they didn't have to do that. One or two even asked for our strips, which I'm not happy about. I said to the guys, they are getting fined now because they cost us 50 quid. I was delighted with the respect shown. Brendan Rogers came into our changing room after the game and he was a class act. He gave a wee speech and said he was delighted with our attitude. They gave us so much respect and took it seriously, and that was good. We would rather have played against that than a second string team. Playing the full team, the guys can keep that memory forever. Report by Graeme McGarry Evening Times Sport, January 22. Russell and Darge named Scotland's Six Nations Captains. Report by Gavin Harper. Finn Russell and Rory Darge have been appointed co-captains for Scotland's Six Nations. They take over the captaincy from Jamie Ritchie with head coach Gregor Townsend saying the move will allow the Edinburgh back row to focus more on his game and deliver his best rugby during the championship. Rich's game time has been limited since the Rugby World Cup, and after Townsend stated he needed to prove his form and fitness, the 27-year-old played just over half an hour of Edinburgh's win over Scarlets on Friday. Both Darge, who is currently sidelined with a knee injury, and Russell, have captained Scotland already this season, with 15-cap Darge leading the side to a World Cup warm-up win over Italy. Russell captained his country for the first time in the comeback win over France at Murrayfield. Gregor Townsend said, Appointing co-captains for this year's Guinness Six Nations allows us to further grow and develop the leadership within the squad. Rory and Finn captained Scotland last summer and bring different strengths and styles of leadership to the table. Both are highly respected within our squad and have been part of our leadership group for some time. I am certain they will thrive with this responsibility and lean on our other leaders to drive certain aspects of our preparation, mindset and performance. Darge said, I enjoyed captaining the team last summer and immediately felt proud when Gregor told me the news. To co-captain your country is a tremendous honour and to do it alongside a guy like Finn who is respected across the game and such a talented player, will be great for me. 
Everyone in our leadership group plays a vital role, and we all have strengths that will take the team forward. This year's Guinness Six Nations represents a chance for us to continue to progress as a group, and everyone is looking forward to that first game against Wales. Fly half Russell said, Playing for Scotland is a huge honour and to co-captain the side is a privilege and something I am proud of. We have such a talented squad and to lead them alongside Rory represents a massive opportunity. I cannot wait to get started with this year's championship. Rory has been a key player for us since he made his debut and leads by example during matches and in training. We'll both have different leadership styles which will complement each other and ultimately benefit the team as we go into the tournament. Scotland will go into the Six Nations without wing Darcy Graham, who has been ruled out for at least the first two games with a quad injury. Great Britain Sevens player Ross McCann, who played twice for Edinburgh at the start of this season, has been added to the squad. Graham picked up the injury in last weekend's defeat to Gloucester, and while he completed that match, he missed the trip to Scarlets. It leaves Townsend short in the back three, with another Edinburgh man, Harry Patterson, also missing the trip to Wales with a shoulder injury. Kyle Staines returned for Glasgow on Friday night. His first rugby since the World Cup, could not have been timed better with news of Graham's injury. While Townsend can also call upon Lions wing Duan van der Merve, one-cap Glasgow man Kyle Rowe, and the uncapped sale shark Aaron Reid. Report by Gavin Harper Evening Times Sport January 22 Kyle Stain admits physio tussle over Glasgow Warriors' return. Report by Mark McDougall. Returning Glasgow Warriors star Kyle Stain has admitted he needed to be restrained by the medical staff to stop him making his comeback during last week's defeat to Exeter after he completed 80 minutes against Toulon. The Glasgow captain put in a tough shift against the French side as Franco Smith's men sealed their place in the last 16 of the tournament. And although they don't yet know who they will face in that April tie, and with a Six Nations campaign for Scotland and games in the United Rugby Championship with Warriors to come ahead, it has been put out of mind for now but Stain was thrilled to be back involved ahead of linking up with Gregor Townsend's squad. The South African-born wing was able to return home for his dad's 60th birthday while he was out injured, and that meant a lot to him and helped him recover, but he's been chomping at the bit over the festive period and into January as he looked to get back into the team and he has revealed that he had battles with the medical staff. The decision was ultimately made that he would sit it out 
and Stain begrudgingly admits they were probably right to do so. But now he's hoping to kick on with Scotland again, after an impressive Six Nations last year. The World Cup in France did not go as planned, but Stain is impressed by the core group of players who have made up the squad in the last few years, and is looking to go again and challenge for the Six Nations trophy, which Scotland have not won since the last Five Nations campaign in 1999. He said, I was hoping to get back last week and I had a bit of a huddle and tussle with the physical side. Unfortunately, it was just the way it worked out. Because we had not trained the week before, I had not had any team training, and they were a bit worried from a loading point of view. I was gutted not to be out there for the Exeter game, but chuffed to get a win at home. I did my best. I was due some time off anyway, post-World Cup, so I got back to South Africa for a week for my dad's 60th, which was brilliant, and a much-needed break. But other than that, I was in and about, and as soon as I could run, I got back on the water-carrying duties and did both Edinburgh Games and Exeter. I said to myself, just to keep it simple and do the basics, carry well and work hard and you do. Training is great for that. Having two weeks of team training before the game is really good for that. You get your sharpness up and get into a rhythm. Stain got his first real run of games in last year's Six Nations, and now he's hoping to do the same again this time around. The 30-year-old has 15 caps for Scotland since making his debut in 2020. With most of them coming last year as he started all five games in the competition before appearing at the World Cup. That was huge for him, and it was why he was so desperate to return to action for Glasgow before the campaign start against Wales on February 3. And he continued, That's why I was keen to get the Exeter game, because nothing replaces the rhythm you get from playing a run of games, and that's why the Six Nations was awesome. It was great to be a part of that group that was fighting so well, and we got off to a great start. I never had more than two consecutive caps without falling out, so that period of playing five games and to get a rhythm was awesome. We have a point to prove, and this four-year cycle has to be different. If you take where we were in 2019, we took on a lot of learning and made massive strides in the four years to this World Cup, but we have to build on it. We're lucky in that if you look at the squad announced, there's a massive core squad that's been there for two, three, and some of it four years. So I think there's a good energy, and we know what we want to work on and where we want to go. So I'm excited to get going. Report by Mark McDougall. Evening Times Sport, January 22. St Mirren will meet holders Celtic in the top tie of the next round of the Scottish Cup after the draw was made last night. The full draw is Kilmarnock vs Barora 
or Cove Rangers. Inverness Cali Thistle vs Hibs. Aberdeen vs Bonnyrig Roads. Greenock Morton vs Motherwell. Airdrie vs Hearts. Rangers vs Ear United. Patrick Thistle vs Livingston. And St Mirren vs Celtic. Evening Times Sport, January 21. The disconnect between elite and grassroots sport across Scotland. Examined by Susan Egglestaff. As a kid, I played badminton, the sport in which I ended up becoming an Olympian in almost every corner of Scotland. My parents would trail me to Grangemouth and to Meadowbank Stadium and to the Kelvin Hall, as well as many other sports centres most weekends of the year. All of these venues are now closed, under threat of closure or seriously scaled back compared to their gladiate days. And the list of facilities under threat is not limited exclusively to these. Rather, the list of sporting venues under threat in Scotland is lengthy and is getting longer by the day. This week alone, important players in both curling and athletics have expressed their concern for the future of their respective sports. In the case of curling, the Chief Executive of Scottish Curling, Vincent Bryson, talked about his concern regarding the immediate threat to Dewar Centre in Perth, which houses the curling rink that the likes of Eve Muirhead and Rona Martin called home, and which is touted to close and rebuilt within an ice rink. If this happens, Bryson claimed in male sport, it would be cataclysmic and it would signal effectively the beginning of an extinction level event for the sport. Add to that, there's the comments from Scottish Athletics Chair David Owens, who is in these pages expressed his concern about the threat of closure to one of athletics' most important venues in this country, Grangemouth Stadium. The closure of Grangemouth would, he says, be a significant blow to athletics in this country, but there's more than merely one venue to be concerned about, he points out. Grangemouth is a priority for us. We are working with partners to make sure it stays open. But you look across the whole country and there's a lot to worry about. Numerous councils are really struggling with their budgets and facilities are an easy target. Plus, there's the vocal concern of swimming chiefs at the imminent threat to the future of many swimming pools across Scotland. There remains a quite astonishing disconnect between the grassroots and the elite side of sport within Scotland. This country is unquestionably a world-class venue when it comes to hosting major sporting events. For a decade, we have regularly hosted major sporting championships, including the Commonwealth Games in 2014, 
several Davis Cup ties, the European Indoor Athletics Championships in 2019, the UCI World Cycling Championships in 2023, plus many, many more. Some of the very best athletes on the planet have graced Scottish soil in recent years. It has, there can be no argument, been a unique time for Scotland in terms of being a host country. And it is here that the lack of any joined-up thinking becomes so apparent. There are few athletes, young or old, or sports fans, who dispute that having major sporting events in this country is a positive thing. I clearly remember as a kid watching the likes of Sally Gunnell, Colin Jackson, or, in my own sport, Camelia Martin, with my own eyes. Seeing the best in your sport can have a profound effect on aspiring athletes. But that effect is severely curtailed if these young athletes have limited places in which to do sport themselves. Incidentally, the World Indoor Athletic Championships come to Glasgow in March, yet the Emirates Arena, where it will be held, has been closed for the entire winter in order to relay the track. Admittedly, there is long-term planning and long-term positives in this case with the renovation of the track area, but the timing is, by anyone's measure, far from ideal. I challenge anyone to try to motivate a 12-year-old to do sprints outside on a freezing, cold January evening because no indoor facilities are available. But the Emirates closure this winter is the least of our problems. Far more pertinent and far more long-lasting is the effect the permanent closures will have on sport in Scotland. Sport has many more strands to it than merely its elite performers. Indeed, in many respects, they are the least important of all in this conversation. The threat to Scotland's sporting facilities, which only seems to become more pressing with every passing week, will have substantial ramifications on grassroots sport in communities across Scotland. It is not the few dozen elite athletes who will be directly affected by closures that we should be worried about. It's the thousands upon thousands of normal people who will be directly impacted that we should really fear for. Plowing hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of pounds into hosting elite sporting events is entirely futile if this country allows facilities to close in the way that's been suggested may happen. Scotland needs to start looking at the bigger picture or else the consequences will be dire. And another thing, Andy Murray's admission earlier in the week that we may have seen his last Australian Open appearance was as sad as it was predictable. His lacklustre display in defeat to 30th seed Thomas Echeverry was exactly what every Murray fan feared that despite his insistence that training had been going well, he would not be able to translate it onto the match court. 
Murray still has several months until the real focus of his season, the grass court swing, arrives. As one of the greatest grass court players of recent eras, it remains a possibility that, on that surface, he can produce at least a glimpse of the form that took him to two Wimbledon titles and an Olympic gold medal. Let's hope he does find these glimpses because Murray deserves to hang his racket up with a bang rather than a whimper, says Suzanne Egglestar. Evening Times Sport, January 22 Vata's Celtic Future Addressed Report by Graeme McGarry Brendan Rogers says that Roko Vata's Celtic future is in his own hands as he revealed that he would like to keep the youngster at the club. Vata, who got his first senior goal for Celtic as he rounded off the 5 nothing win over Bucky Thistle, has been the subject of speculation during the January transfer window with reported interest from Italian clubs in prizing him away from Glasgow. His contract expires in the summer, but Rogers says there is an offer on the table for the 18-year-old as he encouraged the Irish youth international to be patient and earn his place in the Celtic team. When asked if he hopes Zavata will commit his future to the club, Rogers said, yes, but listen, that will be up to him. He is a talent and it depends what the mentality is with him and his representatives. You get some new good young players whose representatives will tell you that if he's not playing in the first team starting, then they don't want to stay. If that's the case, you'd better go then, because you've got to earn the right. He is 18, and I don't not need players ready at 18 unless they are real, real special talents. At 20 or 21, they need to be ready. But you can see he has tools, and this can be a really good place for him to develop. It was nice for him to get his goal, because that's a good feeling, and he has been here a long time as a young player, and he has strengths we, we could develop. I believe he has a contract offer. There have been chats around that. My focus is purely on the playing aspect, but there will be something there for him, I'm sure. Young players have to earn the right, and the likes of Rocco there has been a lot of noise around him. But he is a very young player, and he has to earn the opportunity. I've given many young players an opportunity in my career. I like Rocco. He has qualities. He is strong. He is aggressive. And from 25 yards in, he wants to get goals. You can see even when he came on, he got his goal and he had another few opportunities. That's good for him. He got a taste for it. Daniel Kelly is another I like. If he keeps developing and progressing, he will have a big future. He's left-sided, he's quick, he's strong. He presses the game very well and he's very young. They get a taste for it, and hopefully that taste gives them the motivation and determination to keep progressing.
Meanwhile, Rogers praised Bucky Thistle for their spirit and application. As they left Celtic Park with their heads held high, despite the heavy defeat. And he said, We have all seen the reaction to coming here and the journey they have been on to be here. It's an amazing day for the club and for the players, and the reality kicks in when you turn up here. They gave everything, and the goalkeeper made some really good saves, and we could have punished a little bit more. But it was an amazing day for the club, and hopefully it's a memory that will stay with them for many years. It's what football is all about, creating memories. So it was a great day for the club and they did amazing to be here. Report by Graeme McGarry That concludes this week's edition of the Glasgow Times Sports Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Review, and to tell your friends about our service.